Romans chapter 11 ended in Paul's doxology of praise. And this weekend, that's our launching point for the rest of the book of Romans. In light of all that God has done for us, how will we live? How will we live? I want to begin this morning showing you just a few pictures, if we could have that first one. This was my family's Christmas card four years ago, and let me just tell you, there is nothing like twin boys when they're asleep. Now, here, Daniel on the left and Joshua on the right, they were about six months old. And if you know them, you would see in their eyes that was about the time they began to plot against me. <laughs> hey, would any, just one person in the family, please look at the photographer. Oh, thanks. Nick looked. That's great. And then this last picture. This was our Christmas card just this past Christmas. And you can't go to Hallmark and buy them, although I'll sell some to you if you would like. But it was interesting, just this past Christmas, we learned of several other families whose Christmas picture included one or more of the children being held upside down. And no kidding, in the lobby here after the 8 o'clock service, I learned of yet one more family where one or more of the children had to be upside down. It's actually catching. I don't know if you knew that. But it is. Living upside down can be contagious. We come to Romans chapter 12, and Paul urges us to a new way of living, a way that can feel quite upside down. Romans chapter 12, page 1794 in the Bible there in front of you. The first two verses of this chapter are incredibly important because they set the stage for the rest of the chapter. So we'll look most closely at just those two verses. Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Paul begins chapter 12 with two little words, and so. That means, therefore, because of all that God has done for you, all those things in the first 11 chapters, because of all those mercies, Paul pleads with us to give our bodies to God. This isn't a new commandment being crammed down our throats. It's not some sort of manipulation by guilt. None of us are in any danger of being taken back to the courtroom. But Paul just says, this is a new way for you to live because of all that God has done for you. He says, give your bodies back to God. 
The, the word bodies in this verse, it's the completeness of who you are. Your emotions, your mind, your thoughts, your desires, your plans, the activities, the way you spend your time, all of this stuff, that's the life he's talking about. And Paul says, let those lives be living and holy sacrifices, the kind that God will find acceptable. It's strange to consider living and sacrifice together in a sentence. They don't seem to fit. If we could travel back to the Old Testament, we would understand a bit more about the animal sacrifice system that was in place for the forgiveness of the people's sins. Jesus came and did away with that, but at the time Paul wrote this letter, Perhaps many of his readers would have understood what it was when that goat or that lamb was maybe tied up and dragged over and placed on the altar to die. That's not what Paul is urging us to do. No, Paul urges us to take everything we are and offer it back to God and live. And it's very interesting, at the end of verse 1, Paul says, this is truly the way to worship God. Nothing declares the worth of God Almighty like when a person freely gives him or herself back to God. This is an invitation to a new way of life and perhaps it feels upside down to some of us. Think about the team that was just up here, students and adult leaders. They're giving up spring break, they're giving up their, some money, they're giving up their talents, their resources. They're going to another country and they're building houses for people who won't ever pay them back. It's crazy stuff. But maybe what's most crazy is that they'll all return and undoubtedly they'll describe that that week was one of the most meaningful weeks of their lives. Sacrifices offered to God, living sacrifices. Paul doesn't say this is an easy way of life, but he does say this is how we worship God. In the early 1990s, soon after the first Gulf War, I heard a chaplain speak. He told about deploying to war with his reserve unit, and he was known among them as a pretty heroic guy. He was willing at any time to jump out in front and take a bullet and die for any of the men and women serving with him. Well, when he returned home and he re-entered his civilian life, it turns out that the wife and children who were living in the same home with him didn't find him all that heroic. And he confessed that the demands of daily service to his family, to his wife and his children, 
were far more difficult for him than the thought of just taking a bullet and going out in a blaze of glory. Serving daily, offering all that you are, and then staying alive in it. Whatever life God has given you, whatever you're in the midst of right now, your resources, your time, your family, your lack of family, your joys, your sorrows, your strengths, your weaknesses, the sins you've committed, the sins committed against you, all the stuff that makes up your life, whatever life it is that God has given you, that's the only one you have to give back to him. And when you do, you worship him. Paul continues in verse 2. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Paul wrote that about 2,000 years ago. And imagine that in his day, the culture wanted to squish believers into the world's way, customs and behaviors. Have you considered in our modern day world, and maybe if you just think of this past week, did you see any billboard that tried to sell you something? Any news headline that tried to pressure you to live in the world's customs and behaviors? Any conversations that you had, anything you saw on the internet, any advertisement, anything in your school or your workplace or your neighborhood, was there even one time this past week where you felt pressure to conform to the world's way of doing things? What are some of the things that are important to the world? Wealth for wealth's sake? Power, external beauty, the freedom to do whatever I want, whenever I want to do it. Think with me, what would aliens learn if they came and studied us? Imagine a Martian who's doing his doctoral dissertation and he comes here to learn from us. Is there anything in you that recoils? at the attitudes and the actions and the storylines that are being celebrated. Paul urges us to not be squeezed into the box that the world has for us. And he says that God has a better way. God wants to transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. The New International Version says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The word transformed is like metamorphosis. It's a process where from the inside out, the person is made new. When God changes the way you think, he can make an entirely new person out of you. And that's when Paul says, 
then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. The things that God wants for you really are the very best. Some of us have things in our lives and they've come in strange packages, mysterious, difficult to understand, hard. But over time, Paul is suggesting that we can embrace this life that God gives and that when we offer it back, it's an act of worship. Jesus referred to this as losing your life so that you might save it. And elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul described it as dying to self so that we can be alive to Christ. The world has a definite way of doing things. And God's way can seem upside down to us. Verses 1 and 2 state this concept, and the rest of the chapter gives us glimpses of what this upside-down living can be like. Paul moves into this imagery of the church as the body of Christ, and he describes it like a human body. You know, we know what that is, arms and legs, lungs and kidneys. And Paul says when all the members of the body, all the people in the church, when we're all functioning well together, health reigns. But that when just one body part breaks down, there's suffering. Two summers ago, July 4th, I was standing upright one minute and doubled over in pain the next. And hours later, out of nowhere, I was having a surgery for an intestinal issue, and I wound up in the hospital for almost two weeks. I was out of commission for two months. It was only one body part, but it shut me down. And Paul says that's what it's like in the church. He calls it the body of Christ, and he says that we're many parts and we all belong together and that we impact each other. These early verses in this chapter call out with some questions for us to process. Will I respond to God in gratitude? Will I offer myself to him? Will I let God transform me? Will I let myself belong to you? We must wrestle with these things personally because the decisions we make impact the whole group of us, the whole church. Paul says, in the church we belong to each other. And he picks up in verse 6. And it starts getting pretty exciting. In his grace, God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. So if God has given you the ability to prophesy, speak out with as much faith as God has given you. If your gift is serving others, serve them well. If you are a teacher, teach well. If your gift is to encourage others, be encouraging. If it is giving, give generously. If God has given you leadership ability, take the responsibility seriously. And if you have a gift for showing kindness to others, do it gladly. God has given us different gifts 
for doing certain things well. Paul talks about this whole concept again in 1 Corinthians, and there he says a spiritual gift is given to each one of us so that we can help each other. And he says it's the one and only Holy Spirit who decides what gift each person should have. Imagine if we all lived out of the gifting that God has given. I want to see if we can get a grander vision here this morning, and I'm going to begin with a bad example and then let Paul take us to better places. Something you need to know about me first, though, is that I am not a baker. When I was dating my husband and he would see my roommates using the oven in creative ways, I would say, now, Nick, be very aware, not all good Christian women bake. <laughs> and my daughter, who's almost six years old, is convinced that the mommies who love their children the most buy their birthday cakes at Costco. <laughs> we spend 11 years just looking at that case so that come every May, we know just which cake to choose. Now, my mom is a baker. Some of my best friends are bakers. And if you're a baker, I want to be your friend. <laughs> but I'm not a baker. I'm inept in the kitchen. Trust me. So imagine this scene it was like 16, 17 years ago. I'm in a church. I'm offering myself as a living sacrifice. Um, and it was a volunteer position of leadership, and the big event is coming, so the assignments for that event are being made. And I'm told that my assignment is to make quick bread. Now, I'm sitting there, and I'm too embarrassed to speak up. I don't know what quick bread is. And I'm thinking, I bet Billy Graham knows what quick bread is. And I didn't know Barbara Fletcher yet, but I bet she knew what quick bread is. So I go home dragging myself in and I tell my roommates what's happened. And one of them took me to the store and explained that quick bread is a bread you can make quick because it doesn't have yeast in it and it's supposed to be easy for some people. So on the appointed day, I take my two meager little blueberry breads and I go into that church kitchen and I offer my offering. And this one well-meaning lady looked at him and said, well, honey, those sure are cute. <laughs> and you should have seen the loaves of bread she made. Well, actually, if you go to the Christian Women's Baking Museum, you can see them <laughs> because her loaves are there. If this is a life sacrificed, I had failed. I can guarantee you I wouldn't be standing among you. I wouldn't even be sitting among you today. But what if serving in a mismatched way is not what God designed for you? Some of you bake and you do it well. And we gift people 
in the community with the bread that you bake. Friends of ours who started coming to church here this fall honestly raved about the loaf of bread that volunteers delivered to their house. That's where God uses baking in a spiritual way that becomes something more than just baking. Imagine that God has plans for every one of us to thrive like this. Consider the gifts he's put in you and your season of life and your personality and your life experience. And imagine the impact your life can have right here, 2012. Romans 12, 6 says it was an act of grace, the same thing that brought salvation, an act of grace that God gave you that gift. Friends, many of you know what your gift is, and you've found your place, and you're serving, and I rejoice with you, and I thank you. Some of you know what your gift is, but your, your niche for ministry still eludes you, and I'm, I'm sorry for that. And then maybe some of you are here, and you have no idea. I can only say to you that I believe you're missing one of the greatest blessings of life. And we take this stuff incredibly seriously here at Salem Alliance. We have this thing called the Discovery Seminar. It's coming up in April, April 13th. We have a full-time pastor here. His name is Dale Labram. And his life's work is to help people connect. When you come to the Discovery Seminar, you learn to know yourself better. You are helped to understand what gifts it is that God has put in you. And you learn how your life experience doesn't detract from your service, but it actually propels your service. The Discovery Seminar is a way, a great way, for you to learn more who God has made you to be. Imagine the man or woman gifted to serve, and they have a few hours every week, and they volunteer here, and ministries soar. Or imagine that same person, and they don't have a few hours every week, but occasionally, maybe one or two times a year, they have time. They could help with something like women's retreat or men's retreat or Advent activities or things right now like we're doing for Lent. Imagine a gifted leader who loves God and loves teenagers. You don't even have to imagine. You probably saw several of them up here engaging with students who are going to go out and change the world. Or what about the person given that gift Paul mentions, the gift of kindness, and you add that to their love of small children, and 90 minutes later, that person is helping a special needs child here every single weekend. So many different ways to serve, so many different kinds of time commitments, so many different kinds of intensities of service. You could volunteer in the prayer service. You could organize the pew rack right in front of you. 
You could usher, you could chop wood, you could get involved in recovery ministry, you could help out at the life center, you could volunteer at the medical clinic, you could lead a Bible study. This is just the tip of the iceberg, but can you imagine what God might do with us? Learning how and where you fit is a journey. And I don't want to suggest that ministry always has warm, fuzzy feelings attached to it. But when we lean in, amazing things happen. Get a load of this. We have five roses here representing five new lives in Christ just this past week. Sophia, a college student, came to salvation through text messaging. Five-year-old Sean, whose big sister led him to Jesus. Four-year-old Landon and two women, Tricia and Annie, involved in one of our adult ministries here, pounded ribbons just this past week. That's the body of Christ functioning where each member... Each member only doing their part, and lives are changed, and the kingdom of God advances. Listen to the vision that Paul casts. None of this is possible in our own strength, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, these are some of the things living sacrifices can do. Chapter 12, verse 9. Don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble and keep on praying. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. Living sacrifices can love sincerely, and they can serve enthusiastically. 14, bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other, and don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. And don't think you know it all. We can bless. We can empathize. You and I can engage with the people around us. 17, never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. Imagine enemies who cannot figure out why you're treating them so strangely. That's treating them upside down. Your initiative to stop the feud that you've been involved in might be all that it would take to change a family or a community or the world. We can be reconciled people when living sacrifices live this way. 21, don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. 
I want to show you my family picture again. And like I mentioned, we sent that out on our Christmas card. Well, just a few days after sending it out, one of our neighbors, I ran into him at the mailbox, and he said, I have just one question for you, Susan. Why is it in your family picture that you and Nick and Sarah are upside down? <laughs> now, isn't it interesting when you have a different perspective? When you and I offer ourselves as living sacrifices, it will turn our lives upside down. But just imagine what God might do with all of us in the church to turn the world upside down. Lives offered back to God as an act of worship. Obviously, there's a message here for all of us. But I want to close specifically addressing one group that might be here. And I want to speak to you if you are coming at this from a hard place in life. For you to offer that life, there would be pain in the offering. Your life hasn't turned out the way you had hoped it would, and you feel that somehow offering that life to God is second best. As Paul urged the church at Rome toward a new way of living, I urge you to take hope and to trust. God knows you. God loves you. God desires to receive you. And when you take the only life you have and offer it back to him, you declare his worth in a way that no one else on the planet is able to do.